Our scripture this morning comes from uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 1, and then 7 through 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table heard him say these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word. Amen. So good morning and good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City. We have to start saying that now because there are two congregations meeting in our city now, which we're grateful for. Uh, How neat is that? It's a big Sunday for us. Uh, So thank you for being here on this cold day. Uh, We continue in a series in the Gospel of Luke. This whole month of January, uh, we've been looking at parables from Luke's Gospel. And here we come to this uh, chapter 14, uh, which is really, if you look carefully there, you'll notice it's really three parables stacked on top of one another here in Luke 14. These are some really powerful words and uh, some really important things for us to consider together this morning. So... We're going, to, we're going to be looking at each of these in turn and how they kind of layer on top of one another. But notice that the common image in the chapter is a great wedding banquet or a dinner party, however you would want to, to characterize that. Now, this is a familiar biblical image, not only in the Isaiah 20, 25 passage that Jonathan read earlier in our service, uh, but also, so there in, in Isaiah and in the prophets is the, the looking forward to the day when, when God would come in such a way to his people that he would throw a, a banquet 
Uh, that would be the best party anybody had ever been to. And the hills would flow with wine and all of these kinds of things. And it was an image of, of God's salvation, of his kingdom coming. And of course, in Revelation 19, uh, we're, we're told that at the end of time, when we find ourselves in the heavenly places, that there will be a great wedding feast, a, the wedding supper of the Lamb that we'll be invited to, and that also referring this imagery of God's kingdom of his salvation, this image of a great wedding banquet. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible would choose that to represent for us what heaven will be like. Now, you know, in his earthly ministry, Jesus had a ministry of food and drink. Did you know that? Think about that for just a minute. Some of you will be glad to learn there is such a thing, probably. Uh, Some of you do as well. Jesus had a ministry of food and drink. And so he's always going to dinner parties. He's eating and drinking with people all the time. And in all of his eating and drinking, he is acting out the promise of the Isaiah passage. In other words, the meals that were taking place and that we read about through these Gospels were not just meals. They were sacramental. They were visible signs of the presence of the kingdom in Jesus. And uh, the cocktail hour before the, the great messianic feast at the end of time, you might say, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so the meals that Jesus is having are very significant, which, which I would just say to us too, the meals that we enjoy together can be sacramental as well. It's the reason why, from the very beginning, we, we've wanted community groups to be eating meals together because when we get together and eat, much in the way that when these people began to gather around Jesus to eat and drink together, there's something sacramental that happens. And of course, as we come to this table together, this is a sacrament. And so there's something, there's something powerful happening here in these verses that we're told about. Those who ate and drank with Jesus during his earthly ministry were practicing for heaven. These dinner parties and weddings and banquets that Jesus attended were charged with theological significance. And this is why the religious leaders and the Pharisees got so upset about the attendees at these events that Jesus so often ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Now, have you ever been confused by that? I mean, if you're reading along in the Bible and you come to that, I mean, why would they care who Jesus ate with? And see, that's, you have to understand kind of the biblical theological narrative here. It wasn't just that Jesus chose to spend time with such people. It was the theological statement that his eating and drinking with them made. By eating and drinking with moral failures and social outcasts in Jesus' society, he was saying the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them and not to you. And that's what the religious goons couldn't abide. That what's being put on display here in Jesus' ministry is that his kingdom is a kingdom of grace. That's the truth of his ministry of eating and drinking that it conveyed, that your sin doesn't keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Nobody's sin keeps them out of the kingdom of heaven, but pride does. And that's the teaching and the doctrine of this text. So in many ways, this sermon this morning, we're just going to be focusing on verse 11. If you want to look there... All the, other, all the other parables and stories really, really uh, can be condensed down into verse 11, which is the theme of this entire chapter, and you'll see those words there, and it's really what we're going to talk about. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Therefore, be humble. <laughs> That's the message. Therefore, be humble. Be humble, or you will be humbled. You see the title of the sermon, Be Humbled, or... Be humble or be humbled. Those are really the only two options. 
And so let's look at walking through this text together. I want you to see first, uh, we're given a a snapshot here of what pride really looks like, what the way up, we're going to call it the way up, the natural way of living, uh, what pride really looks like. Secondly, Jesus is going to contrast that with what humility or the way down, the supernatural way of living looks like. And then we're going to ask the question, okay, what makes the difference? What makes the difference between the two? So there's pride and there's humility, and one is natural and one's supernatural. So how, how do we become people who can live, you know, in humility and not in pride? And the answer is that grace, grace is what makes the difference. All right, so let's walk through this together. So let's first look at the parables in Luke 14, taken together, see how they are a warning about the danger of pride. They're a warning about the danger of pride. All the other sins are flea bites compared to pride. Now, notice how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna really, um, to really, I'm going to really, I'm going to really, do this in a very significant way here. As I talk about pride and humility, I'm going to personify them a little bit because I don't want to talk about the proud person as much as I want to talk about pride, and I don't want to talk about the humble person as much as I talk about humility itself, okay? So just, just, just catch wind of that as we go through this. So pride, let's define pride. Pride, according to the Bible, is self-preoccupation and it's self-exaltation. Let me say that again. It's both self-preoccupation and self-exaltation. It's wanting to be the center, wanting to be ahead. Peter Kreeft Put it this way, he said, pride has ingrown eyeballs. It's thinking, it's, it's, excuse me, it's not thinking too highly about yourself, it's thinking too often about yourself. It's preoccupation, self-preoccupation. It's wanting to be the center, wanting to be in the middle of all the action, uh, wanting to be the will that everyone else's will is bent towards, the voice that everyone else is listening to. Pride, pride is the devil's sin. It's wanting to put yourself in God's rightful place. I read, I read a commentator this week that said the song that will be sung in hell on repeat for eternity is I did it my way, but not with the crooning voice of Frank Sinatra. Probably some screeching thing that we can barely stand. Kierkegaard once said, if I had a humble servant who, when I asked him for a glass of water, brought me instead the world's costliest wines blended in a chalice, I would dismiss him to teach him that true pleasure consists in getting my own way. So pride, self-preoccupation, but not just self-preoccupation, but self-exaltation. Whoever exalts himself, verse 11, see that? We're, we're self-exalting. Pride is wanting to be ahead of others, to be first, to have more, to be better, to get to the top so that when you're at the top, of course, you can look down on everybody else. And so one of the great strategies of, the, of evil, one of the great strategies of evil is to allow people to become religious or moral and proud, abstinent but proud, sober, but proud, self-controlled, but proud, theologically correct, but proud, spirit-filled, but proud, conservative, but proud. And so I want to say, if you're here and not a Christian, you know, we notice this too, this propensity among people like us who go to church and do these sorts of things, that in the doing of them, that we somehow become proud. It's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic. But that's what pride is. Pride is self-preoccupation and self-exaltation. Now, here's what happens. In these, in these parables, Jesus begins to give us some examples, some indicators of where we find pride in our life. And there are two I want to just mention to you here, and there's the, each of the first two parables. So look at the first parable in verse 7, and then the second parable in verse 12. And we're going to look at two, two indicators, two indicators of this. So the first indicator is that if pride, pride's constantly trying to move up. So the first indicator here is that your life be- becomes one big... We were, I was playing Candyland with my daughter last night. It reminded me of, 
You know, pride causes your life to become one big game of shoots and ladders. Do you remember this game? Shoots and ladders, right? You're either climbing up or what's happening? Now, when I play with my kids, I'm confession they're not here. When I play with my kids, I, you know, I, I sometimes cheat just so, because it's maddening, isn't it, when you get to the very end and then there's that long thing that goes all the way down. If they land it, I'm like, no, I think he, he was like one more. So, you know, to get the game over sometimes, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible parent, but I'm like, oh, we were almost there and now we're all the way back down to here again. So you climb up, and life can become one big game of shoots and ladders. Some people climbing to the top, one misstep, you slide all the way to the bottom. And so, look here, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed, verse 8, 7 and 8, how they chose the places of honor, saying, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. I mean, we already know this about these Pharisees, don't we? Listen to Matthew 23. Do not be like the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. So these, these Pharisees, these are, who, these are the men he's talking to. And, and their dress, their mannerisms, their timing in coming into a room, everything was calculated to draw attention to themselves. They loved titles and introductions because they loved to be thought of as better than everyone else. That's how they thought of themselves. Their whole life was meticulously planned to get other people to realize the greatness that they already knew to be true of themselves. They were constantly trying to move up instead of moving down. Now, pride, according to C.S. Lewis, is by definition competitive. So he says, and this is the famous paragraph, he says, you know, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than someone else. We say, uh, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. The point is that every person's pride is in competition with every other one's pride. And it is because I wanted to be the big noise of the party. I'm so annoyed that somebody else became the big noise. So the Pharisees, they they leveraged this game of everyone's pride crashing into everybody else's pride. They manipulated the rules to make sure that they won and that everybody else knew it. And so how do you know? How do you know? So, you know, how do you know if you're like this? Well... Pride is always calculating how other, other people experiences it itself. Pride has a persona. It's a mask for the sake of public. It's showy. It's loud. It's always in the middle of everything. Pride lives a very public life. But the irony is none of it's real. It's a PR campaign. It's exhibitionism. I mean, the Pharisees would go into the marketplace. <laughs> they would go into the marketplace and bring people along. They had little, little, little um, minions that would come along with them. And they would kind of look at them. And they, and, and, the, and they would blow the trumpets. These people they brought with them would blow the trumpets. And once the trumpets were blown, then they would gather the poor and give their money to the poor. Now, we don't blow trumpets anymore. We just post things on social media. A proud person is always blowing their own horn. And they always have a lot to say about everybody else because that's the game. That's the game. The best way to climb up a notch or two is to make sure somebody else hits a slide and tumbles down. So pride is constantly trying to move up. But look, at, there's a second thing here in this second parable. Pride is, is using people instead of serving them. Pride uses people instead of serving them. So if you're playing shoots and ladders, uh, you'll use people instead of serving them. And this is, this is verse 12. When you give a dinner party, then now Jesus turns to the, to the host and he says... When you give a dinner party or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. 
lest they also invite you in return and you be replayed, repaid. So see, pride is an overinflated ego. It's being puffed up, not filled up. There's nothing solid there. It's just air. It's inner emptiness and need. And this is why self-righteousness and self-loathing are the same things. They're both symptoms of pride. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are the same. They're twin brothers. And out of this inner emptiness and need, you can be very harsh and rude and critical of others. But also out of an inner emptiness and need, you can be generous and kind and the whole time you're using people, you're not loving them. You're, you're, it's all about you. You're using them. And that's a hard concept. It's a hard concept to grasp that it's not just, it's not just that rudeness comes from pride and kindness does it. doesn't. Uh, that, that there, there are kind people that are just as full of pride as rude people are because their kindness is coming from a place of inner emptiness and need. It's not kindness just to be kind, but to put the other person in their debt. It's possible to be good. It's possible to be good, not for goodness sake, but to be known as good, to be nice, so that people will think you're nice, so that you'll have a reputation, you know, of being nice. That feels good, doesn't it, when other people like you, because, I mean, you're, not, you're a nice person, and that's the payback. That's the payback. See, Jesus says, don't be living for the payback. Don't choose friendships by what you stand to gain from them. Don't don't, you know, teenagers, there aren't very many of you in the, in the room in this service, but don't, don't sit at the lunch table that will give you the most social clout in middle school. Don't be generous because it makes you feel good about yourself or because your generosity to someone probably means that, that they'll be generous back to you at some point. Don't give a gift for the sake of the greater gift you'll get in return. All of that is pride. And it's so subtle, isn't it? It's subtle, but it's not harmless. Pride is the anti-God state of mind, Lewis said, me in the place of God, even in some of my best moral efforts. So we should be on guard against pride in all of its forms. Jesus, Jesus says, why? Because pride was the sin of Satan. It was the sin of the first man and the first woman. Pride is the thing that has taken everything beautiful and good away from us, and therefore God hates it, and we should too. And so we see here, verse 11, everyone who exalts himself like we've been talking about will be humbled. The Peter passage that we read says, God opposes the proud. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So pride, the Bible's teaching here, pride sets you up for failure. I'm reading an account of um, the American Revolution, and the author has been saying, and, and you know, it's not just in this book, but all historians agree that one of the main reasons the British lost the war to us is that they were so overconfident. They, they were absolutely convinced. They had such a high opinion of their armed forces, they could not conceive of being beaten by the ragtag, you know, colonial army. And that's why they got beat. And that's what pride does. Pride is a destroyer of dreams. And that is why Peter says God opposes it, that he actively works against it wherever he finds it. And I think, I, you know... I think this is one of the reasons why we misunderstand the way of God's working in our lives, especially in hard times. We ask, you know, why? Why would, why would God let this thing happen to me? Why would God take that away from me? Why would God do this to me? And we don't always have good answers. We don't always have exhaustive answers, but we have this. Whatever God is doing, we can be sure that he is opposing the pride of me that is the very thing that's destroying my life. And that's good news. Okay, so first we see there's a, real, there's a real warning here about the danger of pride. But then secondly, let's come to the second thing. The second thing is that the three parables in Luke 14 taken together 
are also an encouragement on the other side towards the beauty of humility. The beauty of humility, which is a supernatural virtue. So if pride has ingrown eyeballs, humility stares outward in self-forgetful ecstasy. Pride is, pride is self-preoccupation. Humility is self-forgetfulness. Humility is not thinking of, excuse me, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I mean, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not connecting every experience, every conversation with me, you know, but forgetting myself. In other words, if Ashley, you know, if Ashley uh, comes and says something's wrong in the house, you know, I don't connect that to I've failed. And not every conversation, every experience doesn't have to do with me. You can look in the mirror and you don't admire what you see and you don't cringe either. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine that? You don't fantasize about hitting a self-esteem home run when you get a B on a test. You know, you don't snicker at those who got a C and you don't hate whoever got an A. You can cheer the game-winning hit just as hard as if you were the one who did it. It doesn't matter whether it was your success or someone else's. See, humility is not afraid of failure, but it's not afraid of praise either. Criticism doesn't destroy a humble person. They can listen and not melt down and become defensive, but compliments don't elate them either. They can be grateful for the encouragement, but not soar into self-righteousness. I mean, this is something, this is supernatural, right? I mean, think about this. Criticism and compliments ask a person to be thinking about themselves, but humble people don't do that. So humility makes criticizing and complaining to one another, or excuse me, criticizing and complimenting one another fruitful, not destructive. And I'm not sure who it was that pointed out that humility is a shy virtue, but it's true. If you begin talking about humility like we are this morning, it leaves. I mean, the irony is to ask the question, am I humble, is to not be so. And that's the problem. The problem with trying to be humble is that if I begin to succeed, I will quickly become proud of how humble I am. So what do we do? And this is where the Bible's instruction here is very helpful, I think. Verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, or humble yourself under God's Mighty hand, Peter says. So pride is self-exaltation. Humility is strategic suffering. Humility is following Jesus in the shape of love. The Philippians 2 passage, we were going to read it this morning, but we changed our minds at the last minute. But if if you're, you're familiar with Philippians 2, Philippians 2 talks about the Lord Jesus, and it says, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he, and then it begins to describe this this n- nosedive into, into, um, into humility and suffering. Though he was God... He became nothing, and in becoming nothing, he became a servant, becoming obedient in his servanthood, even to his death upon the cross. So there's, there's from exaltation and glory to nothingness, to a servant, to obedience, to a cross. And this is the shape, this is the shape of love. This is the downward movement into humble love. It's the shape of love, his love for us and our love for one another. But it's also, you know, in following him, it's, it's the very trajectory that we're to follow him on, that we are to follow him on this, we call it the J-curve, this downward movement into death for the sake of loving other people and for the glory of God. And so Paul Miller, who has written about this, he says, as we go downward into death following him, he says, we are active, active in seeking humility and taking the lower place in mindless, hidden serving. This is the journey Jesus takes us on, the, the word that describes what Jesus did 
here are action words. And so this is, you know, you can't, you can't seek after humility. You can't ask the question, am I humble? Because it will immediately go away. But you can follow Jesus into this downward death and, and intentionally, actively humble yourself. And this is what we're called to here. And there are two examples. So look here, the second, you know, the first, again, the first, one in the first and one in the second of these parables. So the first, first thing is that humility is content to live a quiet life. So verses, excuse me, 8 and 10. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, but go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up, and then you will be honored in the presence of all. Now, this is obviously a metaphor. So we have to answer the question, what does going to the lowest place look like? And I've chosen the word quiet because it gets at the Pharisees' problem that Jesus is addressing. They, Matthew 6, again, they love to practice righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And so Jesus says there in Matthew 6 that we ought to practice our righteousness in secret, going unnoticed in the background without words. I mean, the Pharisees would stand and pray on the street corners in public. They would pick the busy, they would pick, you know... First Street and, and Central Avenue, and go to, for us here in Winter Haven, and like go down there where there's the most people, and they would pray there because they wanted everybody to see how pious they were. Jesus says we should pray and go into a room and shut the door and remain unseen. I mean, the Pharisees, the Pharisees would fast and then announce the fast, or or my my favorite is they would distort their appearance so that other people <laughs> they would they would do it so that it made so other people would come up to them and ask, "Are you okay? Is everything all right?" And then they could say, well, you know, I've been fasting for three days. Jesus says, when you're fasting or when you're going through a hard time, don't take to social media and post, about to starve to death. Right? So that people will comment and ask a question, what's wrong? Or if you've had a bad day, if you've had a bad day and you're going through a hard time, just stay quiet about it and pray. See, that's the low place. That's the low place where it's okay to be overlooked or missed or misunderstood. Humility is shy. That doesn't mean it isn't, com- it isn't comfortable in the spotlight. It can handle the spotlight if that's what being obedient calls for, but it doesn't need it. Humility is content to play second fiddle or to be in the lead. And that's the point. That's the point. A truly humble person could go unseen and not sink into self-pity or could be celebrated and not become conceited because humility is content to live a quiet life. But the second thing is humility loves more and needs people less. When you can, when you can live a quiet life like that, then you can really begin to love people. So verse 13 when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. See, you, lo- you just love people. You don't, you're not doing it for the payback. You're just doing it because it's, it's what God's called you to. So humility loves to love. It doesn't really worry about the payback. Pride is puffed up, but humility is being filled up. With pride, there's an inner emptiness in need. But humility, and we're going to talk about this in just a minute, humility has been filled up and is overflowing with love. And so even if there's an unevenness in the relationship, it isn't bothered by that. Even if you do all of the giving and you never receive anything, it doesn't really matter. If you love, to get love in return, that's selfishness, not love. But humility isn't thinking about itself, remember? It isn't counting up who's winning. It doesn't live in the moment. With all of you know, this huge history of disappointment and hurt in the past in the relationship in mind, pride. Pride divides people up into two categories. I mean, this is gross. But don't look at me like you don't do this too. I know we all do. Pride divides people up into assets and liabilities, and then it prioritizes relationships with the assets. So painful to say that out loud. Particularly when you look at me like that, like I'm the only one. 
Humility needs less so it can love more. And Jesus is very honest about how hard this is, both here in Luke 14 and, and in Matthew 6 that I mentioned before. And it's why in both places uh, the scriptures are full of promises of reward. So Luke 14, verse 14, for example, when you give the feast, invite the poor, look there who cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen For then you will have no reward from your Father, but do it in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So in Matthew 6, there's an earthly treasure to be gained, the admiration and the approval of others and so forth, and there's a heavenly treasure to be gained, the reward of the Father. And what Matthew says is that the heavenly treasure is way better. And it's what we read. It's what we read in Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was God, became nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death upon a cross. So Jesus, all the way to the cross. And if you're familiar with the text, you know it says, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you know something really big is coming. Therefore, this one who was the most high, who has become the most low, therefore God exalted him and has given him a name. That is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see how this works? You see how this works? Jesus moves down into humility. God meets him at that place and exalts him. Proverbs 15.33 says that humility comes before honor. See, our problem is, our problem is we want, we want resurrection. (laughs) We want resurrection but without the death. We want, we, want, we want the honor, but without the humility. But the Bible says that you have to move down into death first to experience the power of the resurrection. Humility comes first, then honor, according to Proverbs. So the best things that you want God to do in your life or in your family or at your work, whatever it might be, see, the lesson, the teaching is, is that they come through humility. They come through death. The power of God is waiting just on the other side. So there are two types of people. And I hope that I've captured them well. There are proud people who think they're humble. And then there are humble people who know that they're proud. One is natural, the other is supernatural. So what makes the difference? What makes the difference? How, you know, what makes the difference between the two? And the answer is that you have to learn the lesson of the third parable here in Luke 14, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 15. Okay, and we don't have, we, we're kind of out of time. We don't have a lot of time. and We don't want to get into all the details here. But here's, here's the lesson. The lesson of this parable, if I could sum it up. What Jesus is teaching us in this third parable as it relates to the other two is that salvation is by grace. That's the lesson. Salvation is by grace. Look there, a rich landowner throws a great banquet and he invites all of his wealthy, successful friends. This, this is the upper crust of society. But when the food was ready and it was time to come, you know, time for the guests to arrive, one by one they begin to bail. They begin to make excuses and say, well, we can't come, I've got this, I've got this going on, whatever it might be. And, and in their place, the servants are, are commanded to go to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, verse 21, and to invite them in, and they are the ones that come. Now remember, this banquet is an image of the kingdom of heaven, so what's, what's the point? What's, what's the lesson? What's, what's the theology here that Luke is trying to, to give us? And he's done this before, hasn't he? It's one of his themes. I mean, you have the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, that's a familiar story, isn't it? Two boys. One of them insults his father, squanders his inheritance in immoral living. 
and comes home crawling, you know, crawling on his hands and knees, begging his father for a job. The other son stays home, does his duty, but becomes self-righteous and angry in the process. And at the end of the parable, there's a banquet. And which one of the sons is at the banquet? It's the younger son and not the older. The older son won't come in. Then there's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who tithes everything he has and always done the right thing and so forth, but he's rather proud. And then the tax collector, the cheat, the extortioner, who is so undone by his sin that he can't even look up to heaven. And it is the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that goes home justified, according to Jesus there. So what, what is this? What is this? And the teaching is that salvation is by grace. If it were a matter of worthiness, if it were a matter of work, then the older brother and the Pharisee would get in, but it's grace. It's grace, and therefore, I mean, therefore, unpack this. You have to unpack this a little bit, but let me just say it out. This is shock value here. Therefore, the thing that keeps you out is not your sin, but your pride. No sin. No sin can keep you out of heaven, but pride can Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, Jesus says. I mean, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor, to the crippled, the blind, the lame, the poor in spirit, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is what God does for us in Christ, not what we do for him. Jesus died for sinners, not the righteous. And therefore, those who have no righteousness of their own are the ones who get the righteousness they need. It's not our strength that gets us into the banquet, but our need. Do you hear that? Listen, it's not our strength. It's not our strength, it's not our good deeds, it's not our religious commitments, it's not our moral record that gets us into the banquet, but our need. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself means you you say, I've blown it. I have nothing to bring. I have no righteousness of my own. My only hope is mercy. Mercy, Lord, mercy for me. That's the place. That's the place where where God is intent to take you. So how do you get there? How do you get there? And let me just finish with this. There are two options. If that's the place where he can go to work, if that's the place where every single one of us in the room is meant to live out of, two options. The first option is that you can be humble. You can choose humility, which means humble yourself, which we've talked about. It means moving down into death, into the J, excuse me, into the J curve, into places of service and love that ask more of you than you have to give. You'll find God there. That's the point. You'll find God there. Down at the bottom of that, of that death, that's where God is. That's where God's power shows up. That's where his grace comes to meet your need. Humble yourself into the place of need. Do it intentionally. Do it on purpose. You know, do it strategically. Because the second option is either humble yourself, be humble, or be humbled. Be humble or be humbled. And this is God's saving work. And there are ways he does this positively in our life by calling us, you know, and, and, we, and we go kicking and screaming into places of calling that we know we may not be suited for in our gifts or that may be, may be too hard, you know, something that we can't conceive of being able to do in our own strength. He also does it in a negative way in, in, in what the Bible talks about being disciplined, of taking things, you know, in our life that we're relying on too much away from us or, or stripping us, bringing storms into our life and stripping us of of things that we would otherwise trust and, and feel safe with. See, the goal, the goal is to bring you to the end of yourself. So either you can do that work, you know, and get ahead of it, or you can wait for him to do it. But either way, either way, 
God's way of working in each of our lives, in every single life, is to bring you to the end of yourself so that you look up for health, because that's what faith is. Faith. Faith is looking up. Faith is looking up. Pride looks down on others to feel good about itself, or it looks in to its own resources and strength to find courage, or it looks around to some creative thing for comfort and security. Faith looks up. Faith. Faith is looking up to God for help because you can't do it by yourself. That's humility. See, that's humility. And once you get to that place, once, you, once you're so far down into that J-curve, once you look up to him and see his great love for you in Christ, in your weakness and sin, making provision for you, caring for you, being strong for you, once you look up and see him and his great love for you in that place, then you'll never, ever look down at anybody ever again. Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Therefore, therefore, be humble or be humbled. Let's pray. So, Father, come now in these last few minutes we have together and continue to speak to our hearts, we pray, and continue uh, to work by your Spirit to, to shape us and conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who, though he was God, did not consider his... Godness, something to be grasped and held on to, but made himself nothing, becoming obedient uh, as a servant, even to death upon the cross. And so uh, we cannot, if, if we claim to belong to you, we cannot escape the inevitability of being shaped and, and formed into his likeness, our life taking the very shape of his life. And if that's the case, then I pray that you would so work in our hearts to give us a proactive, a proactive sense of, of moving to the low place in humility and service to others because that is, where, that is where we find your strength. That is where we find your grace. That is where we find the sense of meaning and purpose and, and intention that we've been created to live with. Uh, we're so scared of the death, though, Father, that we never experienced the resurrection. And so I pray that you would come and continue to speak to us and to fire our imagination with ways that we might follow you into these places, that we might experience your love and power and grace in a new way. So as we sing, help us in these songs to admonish and to encourage one another towards good works and fruit that would honor and glorify you. That's our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It takes courage to sing a song like that. And the truth of it is, is that if you're following him, he is leading you. He said, if anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And so there is a cross uh, that he's leading us towards. But the good news of the gospel is that uh, our, our journey with him does not end in a cross, but just as his cross led to a resurrection. So whatever cross he would take us to would, would end in resurrection as well. And that is the promise of the benediction, that the one who exalted the Lord Jesus can also come to you in your place of humility and exalt you as well. And that's what these words mean. And so receive them as you go, uh, bearing the cross that he has given you to bear. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.